Welcome to the Save What You Love podcast. I'm your host, Mark Titus. On today's show, we get to meet my friend, Dr. Jennifer Galvin. Jen is a scientist trained at Yale Medical School and the Harvard School of Public Health in epidemiology, exposure, and risk, which, as you might gather, is a big deal right now with the current pandemic we're going through. Besides being a venerable scientist, Jen wears a lot of other hats. They're all rooted in one thing, though, one maxim that she carries with her every day, protect the vulnerable. That comes through in her work as a filmmaker, as well as a bridge builder, a scientist, and a voice for impact and change. We get into all of Jen's work today, and I'm hoping that you enjoy the show. If you are enjoying the show and you want to go a little bit deeper, feel free to reach out through avaswild.com. That's the word save, spelled backwards, wild.com, and click on the connect button. You can sign up for our newsletter and become a part of this community. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show today, and we'll see you down the trail. Dr. Jen Galvin, welcome. Where are you coming to us from today? Hi, Mark. Good afternoon. Coming to you live from Port Washington, New York, which is on the north shore of Long Island. What are you doing out there? I am just kind of hunkering down a little bit with my folks and the dogs and getting through tons of work, lots of plates spinning the past two years. Um, and this year has been no different. And uh, looking forward to celebrating my dad's 80th birthday. Oh, my God. That's amazing. My dad just turned 75 this summer, and it was a big deal. Honestly, it was um, – that's quite a milestone, getting up into that world, into that realm. You, uh, you've earned it. For sure. For sure. T- turning, the eight, it, the, turning the eight zero is, uh, is not for the weary. <sighs> but also, you know, completely – I know he's completely grateful for it, too, especially given, the, you know – our moment in history. That's so great that you're spending time with them and um, spending time, you know, uh, taking care of yourself too in, in the same regard. And I've certainly felt a bit of that calling and done a bit of that myself this summer. I hung out at my folks' place for a couple, three weeks uh, this summer, recorded a podcast from there, as a matter of fact, up on Woodby Island. And it, I don't know, I think that if we come out of this whole crazy thing during COVID with one thing, you know, that's positive, maybe it is that, that it is sort of a great reset that we're really kind of fundamentally thinking about what we're doing with our lives in a different way that might be better. I hope so. I hope so. I also recognize that given the work that I do, I have, you know, extra privilege of staying in one place and Mm -hmm. doing my work off of the computer that a lot of people don't have. So, you know, that, that I do not take for granted right now. Likewise. And uh, so that's a great point. Um, so let's start out here today with getting to where you are now. Like, what is your story? How did you come to this place that you are now? How did you get into the work that feeds your soul and what keeps you going? 
Yeah, all really good questions and things that I've been thinking a lot about the past few few years, uh, given given the the COVID pandemic. Um, so, you know, I'm a public health scientist by training. So, you know, things like pandemics are things that I used to think about in great detail, but now, you know, in, in recent times, less so as as a filmmaker. Um, but I guess what I've been reflecting on most the past two years is how much my sort of academic training as a public health doctor has overlapped truly with my passion for storytelling. And I guess thinking, you know, even more generally about environmental storytelling, was, which is really what I love to do the most. Um, and thinking just very broadly about that, what that means, environmental storytelling, you know, really means thinking about systems, um, not just the, the natural world, but also the built environment, and social structures, and really thinking more widely about, you know, what it means to be on this planet, how we're a part of it, and how our health is connected to the health of the environment. You have, um, you've been at this a little bit, and um, I know that you've got some really fantastic um, background in your education, and um, a lot of folks like me would uh, look and feel, I honestly feel a little, a little intimidated by the, um, the, the level of education that you've, you've given yourself. And, um, and yet you've been kind of a disruptor in, um, kind of taking the, the degrees that you pursued and, uh, kind of turned them upside down in the conventional thinking of the implementation of the degrees that you pursued. How, how did you go about doing that? Well, I, I think, you know, looking back, it seems, easy and kind of a very streamlined process. But in the moment, you know, when I was in academia for so long and and working to stitch together these very unlikely arenas, you know, I really wanted to work in the environmental sciences, but I also really wanted to work in medicine and public health. And, you know, in the nineties, that was kind of weird. People like didn't know what box to put me in. And I, and I didn't really know what box to put myself in either, but I just kind of kept forging my own path. And, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a water bug. I grew up on in here in Long Island, um, and really started focusing more and more on our connections between ocean health and human health and, and was able to kind of connect those dots and had a couple of people that I respected as mentors who wanted to think about those things too. And, um, you know, so one thing kind of led to the next in academia and stitching together these sort of unlikely worlds of ocean health and human health, um, and then, you know, fast forward, living in Boston, being at Harvard, at the Harvard School of Public Health, and I, Boston is such an incredible documentary hub, and I just became more and more interested in, in storytelling and in visual storytelling, always loved cameras. And, um, you know, again, I think it's like anything else, you just start learning and, and doing, and I was able to volunteer at the New England Aquarium on some of their video projects around climate change and learned you know, how do you put together a production team? Who does what? What does it mean to be a producer, a director, a writer, a cinematographer? Um, And then in 2006, I took a leap of faith. I um, wanted to start my first documentary film in the Bahamas about the paradox of islanders not knowing how to swim and simultaneously was able to do a residency in film and documentary filmmaking in in Cuba. So, um, you know, Looking back, it kind of all makes sense to me how things laid out. But at the, you know, I look back now, I'm like, holy shit, 
really, I, I left Harvard or that career path in academia to go do a documentary residency in Cuba and just start, you know, I had a, a bike and a camera in the Bahamas and I started making my first film. So this is not atypical with people that are on this show, including me, um, that water seems to be the source point for a lot of us. And that seems particularly true with you. I mean, when we're talking about your education, you, you did your pre-med undergrad at Brown. You um, tr were trained in epidemiology exposure and risk at Yale. And then, of course, the Harvard School of Public Health that you mentioned. But before all that, it sounds like there was an underlying passion and an underlying um, motivation to be connected to water. Is that fair to say? Yes, fair to say, fair to say. I just, you know, water has always been a big part of my life. I, my mom grew up on boats. Uh, her family, they were sword fisher people, and they would spend half the year on their boat sword fishing in and around Martha's Vineyard, which is hard to do now. Um, and my dad grew up, you know, he was a really good sailor, liked messing around on boats. And I just, I don't know what it was about me. I don't think my sister and my brother have the same affinity for the water that I do. I just, I don't know, it's just been something that I've always wanted to be a part of. And as I got older and my interest in science, and I was good at science, I really, you know, my just level of curiosity just kept expanding, expanding, you know, and asking that, you know, big, big old question of what if, like, what if the ocean's health is connected to our health? I, and I, of course, I knew that was true, you know, looking at people that were fisher people in my family or thinking about wanting to go swimming and getting an earache as a kid. So, you know, I don't know. I think for some reason, I just always really uh, was quite focused and in love with the ocean. Messing around with boats is a fantastic waste of time. And um, we'll get back to a little bit more about some of the things you're doing with that later. But um, I know that, you know, I, I've been thinking about this a bit lately. Like what if I were to boil down sort of, you know, the core of the work that I'm trying to do in, in a sentence or two. And, you know, I just keep coming back to um, these three words, do good work. And, you know, come what may, no matter what um, the, the flavor of the day is, the critics are doing out there, competition, whatever that means, none of that matters if you're doing good work you feel in love with. You have a maxim um, that I've gleaned. Um, it states to protect the vulnerable. Where where did that come from in you? How was that instilled in you and how do you practice that today? Well, I think, you know, that's kind of a tried and true public health maxim, protect the vulnerable. Um, and I think the, the flip side of that, um, being able to think about those that are most vulnerable around us, be it people, plants, animals, um, waterways, is, is that, you know, when you do that, you also are saying in the same breath that little things make a big difference. And you can have, you can have big impacts kind of at the margins of existence. And, um, and that's kind of what I've always held on to. You can protect the vulnerable, but the, the, the goal is really to make things better, right? To, to, to shift perception, to shift health outcomes, you know, whatever, whatever it is um, with the, you know, the given project or the given purpose of, of what you're, what you're looking to do. 
but I think, you know, think always thinking about the vulnerable um, is a good way to approach life. And to ground the work that you do, I mean, because Jen, you have mad skills. You have skills as a scientist, as a communicator, as a bridge builder um, in, in the social impact realm. What of these, and especially, you know, you're, you're a wonderful filmmaker. I mean, that's what brought us together. In the course of time and in the course of your experience, what has, what have you observed that you feel brings the most impact vis-a-vis all of these tools that you use? Yeah, I, it sounds kind of generic. I think anyone in, in business would tell you, but I really do think it's about relationship building. My favorite thing to do is to introduce people or um, issues that you wouldn't necessarily see together, sort of unlikely bandmates, um, and watching relationships really blossom out of you know people who have very different perspectives on on a problem at hand or issues that people would have never you know put in the same sentence. So that's that's what I've found kind of um, to be most most impactful is to really you know asking the the what ifs. Uh, you you know, maybe it's more of a mad scientist or, you know, the chef, a good chef would do that, right? Putting together ingredients that eh, maybe maybe don't always, you know, or seem to go together. I feel like experience is, you know, clearly the, the best teacher. Um, and especially in that realm of, of bringing people together and bringing people together with experiences that will make a difference. I mean, in, in sort of the, um, Teddy Roosevelt fashion, um, with John Muir and, you know, going out into the country to feel it, to breathe the air, to feel the air on your skin and see the stars overhead. Um, you know, I think that that's a clearly, I, I agree with you, uh, that the impact does come from connecting people and connecting people to, to greater ideas that get them outside of themselves, maybe in the, the, every day-to-day kind of life that they're in. Um, given all this and, and all of the things that you, all the hats that you wear, what, what do you love the most? Like what brings you the most joy and satisfaction to do? That's a good question. I, I'm, I've been lucky where I just always kind of had the personality. I'm a pretty, you know, I'm a pretty even killed person. And I, I, um, not that all the time, but I, I, I do, I do kind of, um, know myself well enough to know that I tend to approach problems and success similarly. And so my, some of my greatest joys come from watching other people thrive and um, to watch people, you know, succeed in, in some crazy idea that they asked me for help with. Um, so that brings me a lot of joy, especially with working with, I work with a lot of young people every year through my thorough foundation work. I mentor 32 undergraduates every year. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a scary, crazy time for college kids right now. They're really questioning, you know, what the value of education is and, um, what they're paying for. Why are they going to college for four years? And, um, it's been really interesting and inspiring to hear their takes on, you know, how they're approaching problems, how they're navigating the world, how they find inspiration and joy in, in, you know, getting up, putting their feet on the ground every day and going to work when they don't really know, you know, it's hard for any of us to, to plan right now. So, yeah. It is. I mean, we've had this uh, global pandemic in 
the way of kind of um, moving forward. And it's it's been a start-stop kind of thing. And I think it's got a lot of, most of us, frustrated, um, honestly, you know, in terms of what, where are we? Where are we standing? It's one foot in, one foot out. And uh, you mentioned problems earlier and solving problems. Um, and clearly, your experience um, in the world of epidemiology lends uh, an authoritative voice to where the hell are we with with COVID, and and how in your mind did this epidemic turn into a political weapon that has seemingly mired us in you know a place where we we don't seem to be able to go forward or backward? Yeah, I think you know this is a this this is a, a, a many hour many hour conversation, but I if I can try to distill it down and and connect it to to what we do as filmmakers. Filmmakers, I think it really comes down to some of the sto- story framing. You know, this idea of pitting pitting the sort of us and them, or you know, you're either going to try to fight COVID or you're going to fight for your freedom. You know, mm-hmm. I think this this idea of this binary us and them um, framing of a pandemic um, has been very dangerous, and um, and will increasingly become so this is you know this is not the last pandemic that we're going to face and just more generally you know i i question every day like how are we going to think about prevention whether it's Mm -hmm. disease or thinking about bristol bay um you know how are we going to think about collaboration like those two words prevention and collaboration are are you know are really important and i think we're we're failing abysmally at, at both of them well, it's hard hard to mount a argument that we're succeeding tremendously in the, in those arenas. But I, I know you you actually do hands on work with education and um, social impact in this realm of epidemiology. Can you speak to what you've observed that you that works, or um, what brings you hope that can work in in this this field? Yeah. Well, I think again, as as a storyteller, you know, you you have to think about how to talk to people about these things and how to talk to people who don't talk like you and who don't understand the science. You know, people keep pushing scientists to, you know, help the public understand more. But, but I think science, a scientist also needs to understand the public more. Um, so I spend a lot of time trying to do that, to listen, to be a good observer. I think a good documentarian does just that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think, we do need to focus on some of the wins in general, and I'm sure you can relate with your fight in Bristol Bay, is just thinking about, you know, again, not framing things as like us and them, um, listening, helping people navigate so much misinformation that's out there. Um, and I don't know, also helping people to understand that, you know, individual risk or your individual story is not the same as community risk or community story. So trying to help people see, you know, outside of themselves. And I think as a filmmaker, it's one thing I've always tried to do, whether it's as a science communicator or as a filmmaker, you know, like journalists always talk about the the W's of writing, the who, the what, the where, the when, the how, the why. Um, And for me, I always try to think of like the who of the why and the who of the how, and also the the by who, who is the messenger for these stories, which can be even more important than the message itself. Um, So those are some of the things I think 
both as, you know, wearing, whenever I'm wearing my public health hat or as my filmmaking hat, I try to um, remember um, as, as good sort of tools for helping to push things along in a positive way. Where are you seeing the who now of delivering these stories? Like what, what does that look like to you in terms of impact? And when you're, when you're really concentrating on how a story is delivered and who's delivering it, what, what are important points to you in, in prioritizing that message? Yeah. Part of it does come back to the, that maximum of protect the vulnerable thinking about who's most at risk. I mean, right now it is thinking about, you know, um, maybe people who can't get vaccinated for, um, you know, other, they have other conditions, maybe they're immunocompromised or going through chemotherapy. I think about people like that. I think about pregnant moms who maybe haven't gotten the vaccine, who are just really scared. Um, and I think about people, you know, I do a lot of work in the South Bronx with an organization called Rocking the Boat. Right. And thinking about, you know, that community that has borne the brunt of disease and death from COVID. And, you know, thinking about how do we continue to get vaccination rates up there, but also help um, to think about how do we, you know, better listen and represent communities like that so that they won't continually keep bearing the brunt of, of things like pandemics, of things like elections. Um, you know, the list goes on. We were going to, I was going to steer us into the the big 100,000 foot view of storytelling and we're going to get there in half a second, but you got, you jumped right into the messing around with boats part, which I love, I love, love, love this work. So, um, could you expound on that a little bit about this work that you do and, um, and, uh, what you've observed over the years about rocking the boat and, um, how that as a movement and as a story has created some impact in New York? Yeah. So Rocking the Boat, you know, I work up with a lot of nonprofits, um, especially nonprofits in the environmental space. And Rocking the Boat is my my favorite. Um, Rocking the Boat is a nonprofit founded by Adam Green, who's just this wonderful genius of an innovator and social impact leader. It's in the South Bronx. We teach kids how to build wooden boats and then use the, the process of learning to build wooden boats together from scratch with their own hands um, as a portal to learn about environmental science, to learn about the Bronx River that most of you know our participants never really even knew was in their backyard, to learn how to swim, to learn to sail, to access this water world that many kids of color and, and kids in the South Bronx specifically, which is where Rocking the Boat is based, don't have access to. Um, so it has been, I mean, talk about a joy in my life. Like I, I really love, you have to come out. You'll have to come out and, and come to Rocking the Boat and, and, and row with us. And uh, these, these students are just amazing, amazing people. And, you know, the pandemic has also shown me like who, you know, who is involved with this organization that's really going to keep fighting for an organization like that during a pandemic when it seems like, shit, there are other priorities, right? But, but perhaps you know, all along Rocking the Boat has really been a public health organization. You're thinking about, you know, the health of this community through the portal of accessing the water and having these students um, learn learn together and, and you know, lead, lead their community forward, um, whether it's with environmental justice issues or just simply wanting to have some fun with their families and we're 
participate in, in sports that they wouldn't have access to, you know, be able to row in college. Um, it's just, it's, it's a really neat, neat organization. Well, I'm going to take that as an invitation. And by the way, yeah, I, I have been, this has been on my bucket list for years. I wanted to come out in 2019 and we were bringing the wild out into the world. And then of course, 2020 was 2020. And so here we are this year, like, let's, let's put a pin in it for 22. I, I would absolutely love to come see this. This just seems marvelous to me. I'd love to see the looks on these kids' faces when they're um, encountering and exploring the natural world like this. It's just, I think it's an incredible example, again, of experience creating a resonance with people that would never have um, that kind of feeling available to them by, you know, without having the experience. So, you know, I, I love the work you do, all of it. And this is one of my favorite things that you do. And let's, let's, let's go just a little bit further into that idea that you just brought up about community and the, the health of community and the resilience of community, creating better outcomes for actual physical health, actual social and mental and spiritual health for individuals within that community. Yeah. I, I think, you know, what's great about a model like rocking the boat is that it's, there's something about, um, these students building things with their hands. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about that translation of something that feels like very cerebral or philosophical, um, to actually, you know, measuring and cutting wood, with your hands and and then making something that floats that you can all get in together. I mean, the metaphors are, you know, abound, but, but it is, it's just, it's just awesome. And, um, and what I love about it most is that, you know, it's really the students leading, leading the way, which is, which is so important. Um, So it's a pretty special organization. You'll have to, you know, next year you can, you're welcome to row on my team. I, we do a fundraising event every year for Rocking the Boat where we row around the island of Manhattan in these wooden rowboats. Um, it takes us all day. We stop for breakfast and lunch, um, but we do circumnavigate Manhattan in these rowboats. And the students are the coxswains. They're, they're leading the way. They're steering us around. But, you know, it's worth, it's worth all the blisters you, you can get for the day um, with, with rowing. I'm in. I am totally in, and um, I'll help with lunch. Uh, that's just fantastic. You're telling a story um, right now, and uh, I'm completely engaged in it. And um, let's let's go out into outer space here for a second. Why storytelling? You've you've said that storytelling is the central hub of of a wheel of change because it seems to stick with most people. Um, what, what is it about storytelling, you know, from a historical perspective and then from you as an individual that you find so powerful? Yeah. Well, I think from a historical perspective, you know, storytelling is the best tool, the best uh, tool we have for problem solving. You know, it's a way we always come together to solve problems. And as a personal, you know, on a personal level, you know, science is always framed as this very unemotional thing. Whereas, being a creative, being a filmmaker feels a lot more emotional. Um, but I think, you know, the, the overlap there, the Venn diagram, you know, it comes together with things like imagination and, and curiosity and, and innovation. And, you know, I think, I think about 
well, there's two things that I always think about as a scientist and as a filmmaker when it comes to like the power of storytelling. And one of them is thinking about the overview effect, this sort of, mm. you know, surprise way of shifting someone's perception or understanding of something. You know, we, you know, that, that photo of, 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 of the earth from space. Mm-hmm. I think it was like 72, 1972 ish. Um, maybe it was we 72. Got- and they, t- they took the, the photo of, of the earth as they were going to the moon. And, you know, that idea of like, or that old adage of, you know, we went to the moon, we went to discover the moon, but all we discovered was, was, was the earth. I think that's the power of, of storytelling and, and unexpected storytelling. Um, so I love that, that I, I hold on to that idea of like the overview effect um, mm. in my own work. And the second thing is that people talk about is thinking about moral ele- moral elevation. This idea of like when you see your experience, somebody going through something hard and 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 succeeding um, or doing something good and helping someone, you you experience that through them and feel that you can do the same. So this idea, this sort of combination of like the overview effect and moral elevation are kind of two things that I hold close when I'm working on a story, when I'm picking what project I want to do next, or when someone approaches with me with a project, I, I very much think about those two things and, and if uh, they align with a given topic or approach to a story. Well, speaking of stories, we, we met and came together through your magnificent film, Memory of Fish. And it's a, a biopic about Dick Goen, who is a legend out on the Olympic Peninsula, um, out on the Elwha River, that's an entire country away from where you are and where you grew up. How did you fall into this story? And, and how did you meet Dick? And how did you fall in love with salmon? Because I know I, we, are, we are kin in this, and we talk about it all the time. How did this all come to be? Yeah. Well, first, I want to thank you. I've thanked you before, but I want to thank you again because – you know, when somebody from the East Coast comes to your backyard and wants to make a film about someone like Dick Goen, you know, you can imagine that maybe not everyone embraces you immediately. And uh, you were not like that from the very beginning. You were like, all right, want to hear what you're doing. I'm going to help you. You just like encircled me with support and love and resources and never guarded the homework, so to speak, mm. you know, and so thank you. I think the film was a huge success because of it on um, that sense of community right away. Um, but so I, I had a, I have a very dear friend, Phil Johnson, who I went to graduate school with and he was, well, I was focused on water issues. He was focused on air pollution. And so he had spent a lot of time in Port Angeles working on uh, pulp mill pollution and thinking about the air uh, there and the Goins, Phil was a like, sort of renegade scientist, and uh, he still is. And the Goins took him in, um, kind of as like their, another son. And so they became good friends. And over the years, I would hear all these stories about this, this man, this like River Yoda, Dick Goin. <laughs> and, you know, fast forward to 2008, 2009, Phil would call me every now and again, telling me, you know, wild stories and, and talking about these dams that were coming, you know, that, that he wanted down. And finally he was, you know, one night he had talked to Dick 
and uh, he had convinced him that he it was time to tell his story. And, you know, Dick was like, well, I'm not Hollywood. They've come knocking before. I'm not, who would I trust? And, and Phil said, no, I, I know someone that you can, that you can trust to, to do this. And so one thing led to the next. And um, I, you know, be, fell in love with Dick Owen as a character, but also fell in love with the river. You know, as an, as an ocean person, you know, rivers were really new to me, but it was the salmon that, you know, I held on to. Um, and, and, and his story really helped me understand more about how incredible these fish were um, and how they connected fresh and salt water. And so, yeah, I just felt very, very lucky to have had that story really fall on my lap um, and, you know, shooting it over the period of six-ish years, um, just committing to that long-term process because I really wanted to follow the story before, during, and after the dams came down. you know, it was quite, it was quite a journey, but, uh, yeah, I still, I, I think about that project all the time and I'm still in touch with Marie Goen, his, his wife and his grandson, Kyle. So, um, I feel really lucky that they've kind of taken me in and, you know, they feel like family to me. What a gift and uh, what a gift to us for creating the film. I mean, there's so many moments in that movie that I, um, think of and remember and um but there's there's one in particular i don't know why my mind always comes to this but uh you've you've took the time to film dick going um working out in his you know back room with like his hickory work shirt and his you know big kind of like logger pants and um and i thought that was such an interesting choice of you know spending the time because we know like you put any kind of anything on screen, it's, it's made it through a gauntlet of, of decisions to make it up there on screen. And I just thought it was so remarkable him scratching out the amount of reps that he would do for his, his, uh, dumbbells, you know, homemade dumbbells, by the way. Um, and he reminded me of the salmon themselves, like that in particular was just such a metaphor to me about someone's persistence and there's nobody making him do that. It wasn't to look cool or to, you know, like have a, a beach body. Um, he's like, I got to keep going. I got things to do just like the salmon. I got things to do. I got life, life to perpetuate. And I, that's what I got out of that scene. I just thought it was so brilliant. Um, what are some of your other favorite parts of that film, um, that, that really reside in your heart. Yeah. Well, I, I actually do love that scene too. Um, I think one of my goals as a filmmaker is always to, you know, how do you help these really big, these big stories or someone who might not never see the Elwha river or never see a live salmon other than what's on their plate. Um, how do you bring, you know, it's always about how do you bring big stories closer, not necessarily making big stories smaller, but how do you make people feel like they're a part of something? And, and that was just something, you know, he, he, he lifted weights, by the way, he made those weights, you know, Mm -hmm. so it's like, he's just, he was so authentic. Like he made his own weights. He would, you know, pump iron with a pen, with his pocket protector, his pen, you know, it was like, it was just, um, he was so true to his own character. And I never wanted to make a caricature of him, but it was just like, I really wanted people to know who he was, what he was made of. And you're right on, like he was, you know, 
Dick Gowen equaled salmon to me. Mm-hmm. So whenever I could find humanizing moments of how to make people feel for the salmon, um, you know, I felt like that was a good way to do it. Um, so yeah, and his dedication of just you know writing down all of his reps was was just great. So that that's too. I, I do love I do love that scene. Um, I just you know mostly love like the quiet moments with him. Mm-hmm. Um, just you know didn't all make it into the film, but just watching him watch the river. And the things that he would see that even the camera wouldn't pick up or the things that he would hear that my mic, I mean, he just, it was like he, you know, I I would joke with my friend, Phil Johnson, that his glasses would see through time. Like he would see things Mm -hmm. before, you know, I I would see them. And it's just because he knew every nook and cranny of, of that place. He was, that he was truly a part of that place. You know, I was going to say that the other the other piece that I loved um, just as a shot choice were the um, the moments when he was spay casting and just how absolutely effortless and graceful and magical he made it look. And that of course comes from hard work, like practicing over and over again, like the softness of uh, an old leather glove or a river stone that's been, you know, cr- you know, softened over, over millennia. And, um, and you, there was just such a, um, a feeling of reverence that he had for each, you know, stroke that he'd make of the, the spay rod out into the water. And, um, like you said, the quiet moments in that film were just spectacular and I, I'm gonna watch it again. Um, and we'll, we're going to link to it, uh, here in, um, our show notes, but how, how do folks get access to watch uh, Memory of Fish if they want to check it out? Well, you can go to the website, thememoryoffish.com. Uh, it's also available on most uh, streaming platforms like iTunes or Amazon. Um, I still have a few DVDs left. So if anyone wants a DVD, they can contact me. I'm happy to send, send one. Um, but yeah, it's really been, you know, that film was finished four years ago now. But wow. I'm really, I'm really proud that it's kind of, you know, lasted just like the timeless story that I had always imagined. Um, so yeah, I, I do hope you'll watch it again. Um, oh, I, yeah. I always, I watch it too. And I, I always see, I see things um, differently every time I watch it. So there's always something to learn, learn from him. Well, and of course the most spectacular outcome is that the Elwha River is free and wild again, and there's uh, all five species of Pacific salmon and wild steelhead and trout that are up and spawning in its system, and um, that was uh, Dick's life work, as as it was, you know, other folks like like Russ Bush in the Breach and a lot of other people, especially the the members of the Elwha tribe, you know, who, whose life blood this river system and their, it's salmon are. Um, so, um, we're going to start winding her down here for, for this part anyway, cause, um, I, I'm hoping we can, we can revisit and continue checking in as, as life turns and progresses here. But we do this fun little thing at the end of each show, um, where you're, you're forced to make some choices, um, okay. and, uh, let's, let's just pretend here for a moment that, uh, you're, you're, and this on the East coast these days is not 
too far-fetched that your house was in the path of a flood. And I knock on wood as I say this, but um, if you could, besides your loved ones, your pets, your your two little dogs, um, if you could only take one physical thing out of the house, what would it be? It would be, I recently um, got a few things that my great-grandmother had come over from Greece with um, when she came to to this country. Um, there are these, it's a silk, um, sort of stitched silk piece of artwork and also her wedding certificate from Ellis Island. Oh, wow. That's treasure. How about a little metaphysical for you? Mm-hmm. What about two of the things that most make Jen, Jen, if you could only take two of those things out in, you know, the oncoming flood, what would those two things be? Oh gosh, the two of the things that make me me. This is a hard one. Um, oh, I don't know. Let me think. You mean like physical physical things that are symbolic of me? I think about things like, um, well, I mean, just from an outside observer. Yeah. Your tenacity. Oh, your yeah. Your curiosity. Like, what are those those type of things? Two of them. Well, I wouldn't. I. I. I my sense of humor is something that I, that I hold on to on a daily basis. Um, and I love to laugh. So that, that would be one laughter. And then just, you know, kind of my, um, my vigilance for health, um, Mm. not like in a purist way, but really, you know, um, the health, I just feel like there's, you know, we don't have much if we don't have our health. So I think laughter and health would be my two things. Anything that you would leave to get washed away in this flood? To get washed away in the flood. Purified. I mean, yeah. I would love, I mean, in some ways I don't need to be watching TV that much. The news (laughs) is horrifying. So maybe take the TVs. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Take the TVs and, uh, I don't know, a second, a second thing. Don't know. Gosh. Maybe, you know. Oh, I don't know. I'm terrible at these kinds of I questions. The, the TVs are <laughs> more than enough to be swept away in a in a torrential flood. Well, this this is scratching the surface here today, but I am so grateful for your your time and availability and mostly your friendship. Um, it has been consistent over the years through ups and downs. And um, when you're connected and something bigger than yourself, like salmon, uh, you know, it, it definitely fills in those gaps when you're feeling kind of alone. So I'm so grateful for you. And, um, Jen, if folks want to follow along with the work you're doing or reach out and contact you, where, where's the best place to send them? Well, probably my, my film, uh, company's website, realblue.net. Uh, so that would probably be the, the best way to reach me. Um, and yeah, Love, love hearing from people and a fan of talking to strangers. So for better or for worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not, uh, let's not make it too, too much longer before we, we talk again. And we're definitely on for a row around Manhattan next year. Um, and in the meantime, uh, take good care. We'll navigate these waters together. And uh, so long for now. We'll see you down the trail. Okay. Thank you so much. Stay healthy. 
You too. How do you say what you love? How do you say what you love? Thank you for listening to Say What You Love. If you like what you're hearing, you can help keep these conversations coming your way by giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can check out photos and links from this episode at avaswild.com. While there, you can join our growing community by subscribing to our newsletter. You'll get exclusive offers on wild salmon shipped to your door and notifications about upcoming guests and more great content on the way. That's at avaswild.com. That's the word save spelled backwards, wild.com. This episode was produced by Tyler White and edited by Patrick Troll. Original music was created by Whiskey Class. This podcast is a collaboration between Ava's Wild Stories and Salmon Nation and was recorded on the homelands of the Duwamish people. We'd like to recognize these lands and waters and their significance for the peoples who lived and continue to live in this region, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to the land and the water, and whose lives continue to enrich and develop in relationship to the land, waters, and other inhabitants today.